that being said, let's open our Bibles to the book of Ezra, please. Uh, if you'll find your place there at the very last chapter of the book, uh, Ezra uh, chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10, as we bring uh, to a close our study in the book of Ezra. However, uh, this really will not be a, a conclusion regarding our uh, study of the theme that has come about in Ezra. Uh, basically, when these scriptures were put together, Ezra and Nehemiah were really one oracle. They were one book. And uh, so we are going to continue from Ezra uh, right into Nehemiah with the same thing. But Ezra's portion is coming to a close here as we look at the uh, extended uh, scripture that has uh, given birth to his name here. All right, Ezra chapter 10, uh, verse number 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehael, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Elishab, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. And all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month and the twentieth day of the month and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourself from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many. And it's raining a lot. We cannot stand out here in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. 
Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jezei, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of the father's houses, according to their father's houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. From verse 18 all the way down through verse 43, we have a list of these families who were guilty uh, of the sin. So look at verse 44. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. Well, it wasn't long after Ezra led a second wave of Jewish exiles back to Jerusalem that the light of God's word began to expose the sin of the people. A widespread indifference toward holiness in family life had been embraced by the Jewish exiles. Primarily, the fact that God's people entered into mixed marriages. Again, this came to light as Ezra was teaching and preaching God's word. He was returning the law of God to its rightful place of prominence. And as the word of God was being taught, as it was being preached, as it became once again the prominent figure in Israel, sin began to be exposed. Now, in case you were not with us during our study uh, two weeks ago in chapter 9, it is very important that you at least take the time to listen to that sermon so that you can understand the proper context of chapter 10 as it relates to God's command for Israel not to intermarry with pagan nations. That command comes to us from Deuteronomy chapter chapter 7, and the sin of Israel of these Jewish exiles was pointed out in chapter 9 of, of Ezra. But as a way of clarity, let me remind us It would be absolutely wrong and offensive toward the character of God to interpret this sin on Israel's part as racism on God's part. This is not an issue of racism. For reasons we explained in chapter 9, this is not intended to be a ban on interracial marriage in general because it's not an issue of race. It's an issue of religion. It's an issue of worship. More specifically, it's about Israel being the holy seed through which the Messiah would be born. So, When these Jewish exiles ignored God's command and took for themselves wives from other nations, it had major redemptive implications. For if they continued 
disregarding their holiness as a nation, how that God had set them apart, Israel would no longer be a distinct people through which the seed of the redemptive promise of a Savior would come. It is a reminder that in all of our lives, unholy decisions always bring about significant consequences. And that's what Ezra is addressing here. The fact that they had made unholy decisions. It wasn't just about marrying someone of a different ethnicity. It was about embracing their pagan beliefs, embracing their abominations, and furthermore, the possibility of corrupting the seed of promise. And so as Ezra prayed confessing the sin of the people and appealing to the grace and justice of God, the Lord began to move among the people. Remember, the purpose of Zerubbabel and now Ezra leading these Jewish exiles out of captivity and back to Jerusalem is so that God would revive the people as they returned to him. And now the word of God along with the prayers of God's faithful leaders, is what God is going to use, it's what God wants in order to revive the heart of his chosen people. And so right in the middle of this dire situation, we see in verse 2 of chapter 10 this wonderful statement. And I want you to notice it with me again. Shechaniah stands up and says, we have, we're guilty, We have broken faith with our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples of the land. But notice this. Shechaniah also says, but even now, there is hope for Israel. But even now, there is hope for Israel. He goes on to say, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Even now, there is hope. I want you to get that tonight. Even now, there is hope. Whatever your sin, whatever unholy decisions you have made that have produced this terrible season in your life, in spite of it all, even now, there is hope. Even now, there is hope. I want you to notice Three things with me from this final chapter in Ezra tonight. Number one, where there is a humble confession, there is hope. Where there is a humble confession, there is hope. Look at verse one. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping, Casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. Well, the fact that this is a very large gathering of Jews that is gathering now with Ezra and bitterly weeping with him, it indicates that they too now share in Ezra's acknowledgement of sin in Ezra's confession to the Lord about the wrongdoing of the nation. 
I think that's confirmed in verse 2 when we see that voice from the crowd speaking up on behalf of the people and publicly declaring that they had indeed broken faith with God. You see, there's no excuse making here. They're not seeking to justify their wrongdoing. There's nothing here but a humble confession, a humble confession of their un holy sin against God. In fact, their humility and sincerity is seen by the phrase in verse 3 where it says they were now trembling at the commandment of God. They were trembling at the commandment of God. You read on further in verse number 9, when they gathered together on that rainy day in Jerusalem, they were trembling, verse 9 says. They were trembling because of this matter. Because of this matter. Well, it also says it was raining. Yes, it was also raining, which didn't help things. But they were trembling because of their sin. They were, they were broken at the fact that they had acknowledged their unholiness before the Lord. You see, what we see here in verse 1 is the evidence of brokenness. A conscience that has now been made sensitive to the word of God. God was convicting his people and they are now genuinely weeping and trembling and confessing their sin to him. And it's not just one or two. Let me remind you, verse one says, it is a very large gathering of men, women, and even children humbling themselves and confessing their sin to God. Friends, this is where reviving takes place. The gospel does not first make us feel good about ourselves. Some people present the gospel as, first of all, being something that makes us feel good. No, no, it shows us just how wrong we are, just how sinful we are. When we truly see the nature of the gospel, it begins by breaking us, shaking us, causing us to tremble. And that's true of any reviving. Before any reviving can take place around us, in us, through our marriages and our families, before any reviving can take place, sin must be acknowledged. It must break us. It must shake us. It must cause us to tremble. It must lead us to confess our sin before God. But where there is a humble confession, there is hope. Where there is a humble confession, there is hope. David said in Psalm 51, I know my transgressions. I know what I've done. And my sin is ever before me. I mean, every day. Every day and I wake up and I'm still living in this old sinful flesh. I still deal with the same old problems. I know who I am. I know what I've done. Against you and you alone, David said, I have sinned. David also wrote in Psalm 32, when I kept silent, when I didn't confess my sin, when I didn't uh, uh, shed light on my struggles, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. 
Therefore, I acknowledged my sin to God. I did not cover my iniquity any longer. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave me. You see, where there is a humble confession, there is hope. This is where it begins, the reviving that God wants to do in our heart, the reconciliation that he promises to bring into our lives with him and with one another begins by weeping bitterly in acknowledgement of what we have done against the holiness of God. It began with Ezra, and God used the brokenness of Ezra and the emphasis on the word of God in Ezra's life to trickle down into the people. And the next thing you know it, men and women and children from all over the nations have the movement of God upon their lives as they recognize their sin, as they confess it, as they experience brokenness before God. Where there is a humble confession, there is hope. Second thing we see here is that where there is a clear repentance, there is hope. Where there is a clear repentance, there is hope. That begins in verse 2. A man by the name of Shechaniah, he speaks up in confession of the people's sins. But also, as we noted in verse 2, he expresses hope in spite of their sin. He realizes that this hope could only be experienced through a humble confession and and a clear repentance of the sin. It was not enough for them to just weep about it. It was not enough to just say what we did was wrong. He realized as we learn throughout the word of God that to truly be right with God involves repentance, repentance on the part of God's people. Look at what he said in verse 3. This was his proposal. Did not come from Ezra. This is his proposal. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away, to divorce all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who trembled at the commandment of our God. In other words, the counsel of my Lord is not an uppercase Lord. He's not saying that God counseled him to do this. He's basically saying, Ezra, if you feel like this is a proper proposal, unless you counsel us differently, we want to make sure that we're back in step with God's commandment, God's law. That's why he says at the end of verse 3, let this be done according to the law. Now, the law wasn't necessarily telling him to divorce. But they were so broken by their sin, they wanted to be back in step with the law. They wanted to be back in step with what God had already commanded that they had broken. So verse 4 says, Arise, for it is your task. We are with you. Be strong and to do it. And then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as has been said. And so they took the oath. Now, before we get into the nuances of this, I just want to say here, because I don't want you to miss the major point that's being made. And the major point being made here is that there is always hope for those who will turn away from sin. There is always hope for those who will turn away from sin, for those who will make a clean break from sin. That's the overarching theme of this decision that we need not miss. 
Repentance is turning away from unholiness. It's turning away from sin and turning to God. Now, let's talk about their decision for a moment. They were so broken, so broken by their sins, so concerned the consequences had threatened not only their survival as a nation, but also the future hope of Messiah, that their decision, which in their minds best reflected their repentance, was to divorce their pagan wives. Here's how it happened. Verse 6, it began with Ezra fasting and praying through the night. He took the proposal. He did not counsel them against it. Instead, he went before God. He's praying and he's fasting all night long. And then in verse 6 through verse 9, we see a proclamation was made to all the exiles that they were to assemble in Jerusalem and they were to be there within three days. If they did not come within three days, their properties would be taken away and they would be exiled once again as outcasts of the Jewish community. Of course, the day, as we read earlier, was marked by heavy rain. They're standing outside in the tumultuous weather, trembling because of the circumstances but also trembling because of the matter before them. Ezra declared to the people that the decision had been made to show clear repentance of their sin. And that in order to show clear repentance, they were to all put away, to divorce their foreign wives, to which the assembly largely agreed. Only four people among all of those people opposed the plan. But the plan went forward. The process of officially executing the divorces was carried out by assigned officials. You can read about it all through that text. Assigned officials met with each individual families. It took about three months for all of this to take place. Investigating, examining, carrying out the proper divorcement. And then we see the number of families involved. That's from verse 14 all the way down through verse 43. There's about 110 families that were involved in this divorce procedure. And what's interesting is it ranged from leaders in Israel, the priests, Levites, musicians, and then he says the rest of Israel, essentially Every corner of Israel from top to bottom had been guilty of this sin. And then the chapter ends on somewhat of a apparent sad note. Verse 44, all these had married foreign women. Some of the women had even born children. It really is a sad scene, isn't it? It's also an extremely complex situation that invokes a lot of questions, perhaps questions that I can't fully answer. Did God prescribe this action? If so, why did he do so? If throughout scripture we see that he hates divorce, Malachi chapter 2 it talks about God is, is repulsed at the putting away, at divorce. Is there any principle 
in what's happening here regarding our marriages today? Now, now a few thing, things about interpreting, especially Old Testament narrative that we need to remember. Uh, one, we're not the nation of Israel. It's very important that we understand that. You and I are not the nation of Israel. Secondly, we're not Jews. We're Gentiles, all right? Very important that we understand that. The, the third thing we need to understand is that we're not living prior to the coming of the Messiah. He has already come through the preserved and pure seed of Israel. So when we study things that take place in the Old Testament like this, we have to always put that as a reminder in front of us. We're not the nation of Israel. We're, we're not Jews. We're Gentiles. And we are living prior to the coming of the, or we're not living prior to the coming of the Messiah. We're living in the time in which the Messiah has already come through the seed of Israel. I say that to remind us this evening that certain things we read about Israel and God's relationship with them during the time prior to the birth of Jesus are unique and they are unique circumstances regarding their holiness as a chosen nation, specifically set apart for God's redemptive purposes in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So, so, so applying historical narrative in the Old Testament is always a tricky issue because in some context, Scripture is simply describing for us the events that happened, not necessarily prescribing us to do the same. For example, if you have read ahead, and when you do, you'll see that the action that Ezra permitted here under his leadership will not be the same action that Nehemiah permits when he's faced with the exact same issue under his leadership 10 to 15 years later. And through all of that, we see neither one of them condemned for their actions, even though they did two different things. That, that's what makes things like this in historical narrative so complex, so difficult. Not everything is so simple and straightforward for us as a Gentile people, for us as a church in the church age, as it relates to how God dealt specifically with the nation of Israel. They're complex issues. And by the way, these complex issues were not created by God. These complex issues were made that way by their sin, by their unholiness, which still, which still requires repentance. Still requires it. So, so, so with that being said, let me, let me add this here, that when the Old Testament narratives bring question, the New Testament scriptures bring clarity. That's how we have to look at these things. Where the Old Testament narratives bring question, the New Testament scriptures bring clarity. And here's what we are clear on as New Testament people. That Ezra chapter 10 cannot and should not be used to justify divorce. You, you can't say tonight that I don't think my husband is truly a believer, so I, I better make things right with God and kick him out. 
After all, that's what the people of Israel did in Ezra chapter 10. No, you can't, you can't do that. You can't do that. This is a complex situation that only describes what Ezra and the people did. It's not specifically prescribing for us the exact same behavior. In their specific circumstance, as a holy seed, let me remind you, as a holy seed set apart for the birth of the Messiah, they wanted so desperately to be right with God's law and repent of their behavior that this action was the best way they felt that their repentance would be reflected. This is the best they knew how to handle it. Derek Thomas, who writes in his commentary, a lot on this very issue was extremely helpful to me in just making sense of all of this. Presbyterian pastor whom I greatly respect, and if you ever move to Columbia, South Carolina, you need to join his church. He is a great, great man. Here's what he said in his commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah. There can be no doubting that Ezra and the people's representative leaders believed that what they did was the Lord's will. It is foolish of us to second-guess their actions. Even Nehemiah, who took a different course, did not thereby turn around and condemn his predecessor's actions. The difficulty of the situation that Ezra faced cannot provide us with a prescription for behavior today. It merely describes for us what Ezra and his colleagues did. This is not a recipe for situational ethics, a moral code that is altogether relative and impossible to legislate. It merely suggests that there are situations of enormous complexity about which we do not have sufficient information to form an alternative viewpoint. There is a lesson for us here, he goes on. Sometimes our brothers and sisters are called on to make very difficult decisions. We may opinionate in armchair criticism but it is often better to keep our own reflections to ourselves. I think he has a point. But what the New Testament does make absolutely clear for the church is that the believer who has entered into marital union is to prioritize grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation rather than divorce. Remember, as we read in Malachi chapter 2, God hates divorce. He finds it repulsive. He permits it only on the grounds of two occasions. And the only reason that he permits it, he tells us, is because of the hardness of our hearts. That if he did not enact this to some degree, then we would just make things worse. And so the the two grounds on which he permits it is, is adultery and willful desertion. Willful desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Those are the two permissions. However, in both of those texts, God still prioritizes forgiveness. He still prioritizes reconciliation. He still emphasizes permanence, even if adultery takes place. Even if you're married to an unbeliever, he still makes reconciliation, permanence, and grace the priority. That's what we understand for us as the church for those of us who live in the New Testament age. And here's the principle of this point. The principle here is that God demands holiness. 
He demands it. He demands it in every part of our life, and he leads us to it through the guidance of his word, through the help of his Holy Spirit, and through an all-out focus on the gospel. But when the consequences of sin seem overwhelming, the way to hope is by making a clean break from our sin. Separating ourselves once again from unholiness, bringing peace to our conscience by clearly repenting of the sin that has gotten us in this mess in the first place. This is what Ezra and this group of Jewish exiles were doing. They were repenting the best they knew how for the sake of their hearts as well as the purity of God's law. It was the best they knew how to show repentance, even even if they got it wrong. And I'll leave that to you to think through. Because what ultimately matters, what ultimately matters is that they repented of their sin. They repented of their sin. And that's the call to us who have abandoned the holiness of God. To humbly confess our sin and to fully and clearly repent of our sin. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his sins will not prosper. That is, whoever hides them, whoever covers them up, whoever never speaks about them, they will not prosper. But the one who confesses and forsaken, confesses and forsaken, that person will obtain the mercy and forgiveness of God. In other words, where there is clear repentance, there is Where there is clear repentance, there is hope. Let me give you the third one and we'll be finished. Where there is the Lord Jesus, there is hope. Where there is the Lord Jesus, there is hope. This is the beauty we have as New Testament believers who do not live in this very complex Old Testament age. Jesus has come. The Messiah has has been born through the preserved and pure seed of Israel. And he is our perfect shepherd. He's our perfect king. He has delivered us, his church, through his sacrifice from our exile of sin. And guess what? Unlike Ezra, unlike Moses, unlike David, unlike all of these Old Testament men who did their best but yet are still flawed, Jesus Christ will perfectly lead us all the way until we take on full likeness of him in heaven. And in whose heart Jesus is Lord. And in whose heart Jesus is Lord, there will always be. There will always be hope. In Paul's opening letter to Timothy, he he opens his address to his young protege like this. Protege was not the first thing to come to mind. Padawan was the first thing to come to mind, but we'll go with protege. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of our God and our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is Our hope, our hope. 
What is your hope tonight? Paul shares with us the confidence that we ought to have. That even now, right here on June, whatever, 7th, 2023, even now, there is hope for us. There is hope for us, as Shechaniah said. In spite of what we've done, there is hope for us. There is hope for us in spite of our failures, in spite of our circumstances, in spite of our sins. There is hope for every one of us. Why? Because Jesus is our hope. And he invites us to come to him and to rest in him and to put all our Hope in him. For where there is the Lord Jesus, there will always be hope for you. In the midst of the complexity, let's not miss that. Thank God for Ezra and thank God for Shechani, who reminded the people that even though we're in a mess, there is still hope for us. And let me remind you tonight that where there is a humble confession, where there is a clear repentance, and where there is the Lord Jesus, there is hope. And there is hope even now. Let's bow our heads together for prayer.